All right, go ahead and grab your seat, and we'll go ahead and get started. Since, you know, since we don't do meet and greet, you don't need that much time to stretch, so we'll just, we'll just jump into the, the preaching of God's Word. Um, I, too, want to wish the, the mothers out there a happy Mother's Day, including my wife, the mother of my children, and my own mother. Uh, my mother's in Kansas City, but she's probably watching. If not now, she's going to be watching later, so happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. Um, uh, we are starting a new series today. Uh, it's going to be a practical follow-up to what we've learned over these past three Sundays and what we're continuing to study on Wednesday nights. Uh, just, and that's regarding the timing of the rapture, rapture and the possible very soon return of our Lord. And if that is true, what we're gonna, which I wholeheartedly believe it is, by the way, uh, what we're going to look at over these next few weeks is, what does that mean for us? What should we do? You know, what does that mean for me today? Or maybe better put, what should we be focusing on and prioritizing as believers in these last days? And that's what we're going to try to answer for you over these next four Sundays. So I'm calling this series our, our Rapture Ready Reset. Because we're kind of resetting church, you know, in this, in this weird new world anyway. Uh, so we might as well take the opportunity to reset our priorities to make sure we're prepared to meet the Lord. And we're going to do this out of, out of three verses we find in the book of 2 Timothy. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. So today we're going to look at all three of those verses and give you an overview. And then over the next three weeks, we'll dive into verse 7 specifically. Because that's the verse that really focuses on the priorities that, that we need to look at. And, and, and we see there the things that were important to the Apostle Paul at the very end of his life. So we're going to use those as a guide for our learning. Now to give you a, a quick background, just a very quick background of the book of, of 2 Timothy. This is the last book um, that Paul writes. It's considered a, a pastoral epistle. Because he's writing to one of his disciples. He's writing to Timothy, who, who he had left to be the pastor at the church of Ephesus. So there are many pastoral-type charges and as instructions for Timothy in there. But the book is obviously great for every Christian. All the Bible is, is written for us. And it's great for every Christian because Paul was really teaching Timothy to be an example to the flock in the last days. And the importance of loyalty to God through the Word of God in these last days of apostasy. And I think we could all use that today and, and, and just analyze and assess our own personal loyalty to God through the Word of God today. And when we get to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, it's the last chapter. So it's the last chapter of Paul's last book, and there is some insight in there that we don't necessarily get in some of Paul's other epistles with respect to what he deemed to be the most important things in life. As he was personally getting ready to see the Lord face to face, he let Timothy, and by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he let you and me know what really mattered to him. And so let's look at it and see what this is. So if you do have your Bibles with you and you haven't already done it, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And today, we're going to start out by simply asking the question, are you ready? Are you ready to meet the Savior? If the rapture is in fact this year or, or, or even sometime in the next few years, are you ready? And the great thing about the passage we're going to dissect over these next few weeks 
is that Paul said he was ready. But he also goes on to say why. And Paul's why gives us our how. So if after today's message you deem you're not ready, you'll know how to get ready. Or maybe you'll deem you are ready. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. You'll know how to stay ready. So are you ready? Ready to get into God's word? All right, let's do it. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read verses 6 through 8. Paul says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to direct our, our time in his word this morning. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for, for you and, and just your revelation to us through it. And, and Lord, I pray that, that you be with each and every one of us this morning. We, we do look forward to that day. We know it's coming. And Lord, many of us think it's coming soon. And so, Lord, we, um, we ask you to teach us today what, what we need to be looking at and thinking about and focusing on uh, in these last days, Lord. And, and I pray that everything that is said is, is true to your word. I pray that it's glorifying to you and it honors you. And, Lord, I pray that, that we leave today uh, closer to you than when we came in. Lord, I love you. ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know for many of you... Uh, this passage is well-worn territory. Um, these are popular words from Paul, particularly verse 7. And I don't know about you when you hear them. I don't know what they do to you, if, if anything, when you hear them. But for me, they, they challenge me. God has used them in my life many times to strengthen me when I was weak, to encourage me, to challenge me when I was struggling, to bring me back to center regarding what's important. Because if, if I could write my own epitaph, I would want it to be 2 Timothy 4.7. That's it. I want to give it all to him and just leave it all, leave it all here and then get, you know, get what he gives me back. So I want to try to challenge you this morning along those lines. Because I know, I know because I'm a person like you. And so I know that for many people, when we talk about the rapture, we talk about the end times, we talk about these being the last days. For some people, it maybe kind of freaks you out a little bit. I mean, maybe that is you. And I get it. Jeff even talked about it some last week. This life is all we know. What is to come is more unknown. Maybe we have plans, things we want to do, things we want to accomplish. But the fact is, the Bible says that talk about the rapture should be a comfort to us. When Paul was laying out the doctrine of the rapture for the church at Thessalonica at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he ends that discourse with this statement, verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And the Thessalonians were, were a church that were, were facing great persecution. But, but that is written to the entire body of Christ. And the rapture should be a comfort to all of us. We should be comforted by its thought. Because this world is not our home. And we should not view it that way. But sometimes we do. Again, 
because it's all we know. So let me give you a little tip right here before we get into our points. If talk about the rapture doesn't provide you at least some level of comfort, you might not be quite ready. But listen, I, I want you to very clearly understand the intent here. Because that, that last statement does depend on your perspective. And, and here's what I mean by that. If the rapture you know, freaks you out a little bit because you're concerned about unsaved family and friends, well, that's godliness. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if you're thinking about others, then, then maybe you're more ready than you even know. And you can be personally comforted by the thought of meeting Jesus in the air. But if the rapture scares you because you're concerned about what all you're going to miss out in this world or because of how much you enjoy this world, well, that's not quite as godly. But the truth is, both of those scenarios can describe the same person. And in fact, both of those scenarios probably do describe many of us this morning. And it's because we're spirit and flesh. It's because we're in this spiritual tug of war that infiltrates all aspects of our life. But that tug of war, that battle does not negate our need to be prepared, to be ready for the rapture. So, are you ready? And if you don't know, I'm going to help you out because that's our first point this morning. Point number one, you need to assess your readiness. Assess your readiness. And we see the key for this in verse 6. Look there with me again. Paul says, for I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. So as you can see here, Paul is at the end of his life. And you may be thinking, well, okay, but, but I think, I'm pretty sure here, Paul's about to die, right? I'm pretty sure the rapture didn't happen back, you know, back when he was writing this book. And so since he's getting ready to die, that's different than the rapture. And in verse 7, he says he finished his course. So I'm just starting my course. So he's not really getting ready for the rapture. And while that may be technically true, he was ready for the rapture. And he wrapped it all together at the end of verse 8 when he said, Listen, this describes anyone who loves his appearing. You can say what I said in verse 7. You can receive the rewards that are due if you're longing for that day. If you love his appearing. And then beyond that, when and how your life or my life ends, it doesn't even matter for the purposes that we're talking about this morning. God is in control of that anyway. Paul was martyred, so his life was shortened, so to speak, from a humanistic perspective. Maybe my course turns out to be a marathon and yours is a 100-yard dash. God knows. The call is still to finish what he has for you while you have the chance. Your course is designed for you based on the time God knows you have. You see, we're talking about all this in light of what we believe to be the very soon coming rapture. But really, it does not matter. We should live our lives every day ready to meet him, whenever and however that happens. 
We know. We know we don't control life and death. Those are in God's hands. And we don't know and we don't control the day and the time of the rapture. That's in God's hands. So it doesn't matter. Just be prepared. And Paul was ready because of two words, I believe, that we see in this verse. And I think the study of these words will help us assess our own individual readiness. And the first word we need to look at is, is the word offered. Offered. Paul said, for I am now ready to be offered. And as I told you, Paul was about to be martyred. And he was, in fact, martyred shortly after the writing of this epistle. History tells us that Paul was beheaded in Rome sometime in the, in the late 60s A.D. So when Paul says he was ready to be offered, what he meant was he was ready to offer himself as a sacrifice to the Lord. And listen, our readiness to meet the Lord is always tied to our willingness to be offered as a sacrifice to him. And that doesn't just apply to dying for Christ. It also involves living under Christ too. We know Romans 12.1 calls that our reasonable service. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's what our life is to be. And God said it's, our, it's a reasonable to ask that of us. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he made a similar statement. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, which is the rapture, by the way, the day of Christ. He says, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And then verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Now, these are great verses too. Paul says, listen. Above all, I don't want my life to be a waste. He says, I don't, I don't want to run in vain. I don't want to labor in vain. I don't want everything to be empty. And all I did and all the time I spent and the sacrifices I made, I want them to be about something. I want my life to be about something bigger than me, so I'm willing to give it up even for you. He was talking to the Philippians. Because he said, even if I give it up for you and I'm a sacrifice for you, then we can rejoice together in the day of Christ. So, so let me say here, in order to assess your readiness, you have to assess your, assess your willingness. Are you willing to be offered as a living sacrifice to the Lord? Now, the word offered is used 28 times in the New Testament. 26 of those 28 times, it, it references uh, offering a sacrifice. Um, there's a couple times it's offering a prayer, but every other time it is offering a sacrifice. And now sometimes the sacrifice was to God. Other times it was to idols. But either way, a sacrifice was involved. It's the exact same in the Old Testament. We see it from the beginning with Cain and Abel. We see it with Abraham and Isaac. In fact, a, a New Testament reference for Abraham and Isaac in Hebrews eleven seventeen, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. 
And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. And we know what that pictures. And so sometimes the sacrifice to God, like, like Abraham and Isaac, other times it wasn't, or at least it wasn't acceptable to God, like, like Cain. Many times you see the sacrifices being offered to idols. And that tells me that your willingness and my willingness isn't about if, it's about who. See, the question isn't if your life will be a sacrifice. It's just upon whose altar will you lie down. And you say, well, I don't know if I can give my life to him in that way. Well, can I ask you why you'd rather give it to the world, to your flesh, and to the devil, where there is nothing in return? The one true God is asking you to give to him based upon what he has already given to you. The world, your flesh, and the devil, they just want to take from you. They want to rob and steal. And God wants to give back. And he didn't even wait for you to do it. He did it first. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And he sat down waiting for you and waiting for me. And he loves you so much that he wants a relationship with you built upon mutual sacrifice. He allows you to enter that relationship for free based solely on what he has done. But to build that relationship into the love story he longs for, you and I have to sacrifice too. But he's given us a free will. He's given us the option to say no. But just know that he's already said yes. He's already done his part. And in doing his part... He showed us exactly how to do ours. And he's always been very clear on this. There is no bait and switch with the Lord. You develop an intimate, loving relationship with him by taking up your cross just as he took up his. And remember, it's your reasonable service. But there are no shortcuts. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 says, And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, this is obviously Jesus speaking, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. You see, we become a living sacrifice as we die to our flesh every day. And that is a door that we have to walk through every day. Christ did it once for all, sat down at the right hand of the Father. We got to get up every day and walk through that door. And I use that terminology of it being a door that we walk through every day very intentionally. Because there's a, there's a beautiful picture there that we need to understand. Some of you know this already, but the, the cross is likened to a door and a doorpost. And we know this from the Passover story of Exodus chapter 12, that, and we look at that on Easter Sunday. M many of you know the story. Jews were trying to leave e Egypt. Moses and Pharaoh kept 
going back and forth while God kept sending plague after plague after plague because Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. And the tenth and final plague was God smiting the firstborn of, of the land, both of man and beast. And for God to pass over the homes of the Jews, they had to take a special lamb without blemish, and they had to kill it, and they had to put its blood where? On the wooden doorpost of their house. And when God saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over their house and not smite their firstborn. And that's a prophetic picture of the blood of Christ on the cross that when we accept and apply to our life, our sins are passed over and forgiven. God accepts the sacrifice of his son on our behalf, just like he accepted the sacrifice of that lamb in Exodus chapter 12. So the doorpost pictures a cross, the, the cross of Jesus. But then a few chapters later in the book of Exodus, there's another doorpost that also pictures a cross. And it's in, in one way, it's also another picture of Jesus, but, but this one is a picture of, for you and me too, as we pick up our cross. Because in Exodus 21, we see the law of the Hebrew servant. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve. And in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him into the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door, or under the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Now this Hebrew servant is a picture of Jesus. Now there's some interesting things in there, but it's a picture of, his Je of Jesus because of his willingness to be nailed to a doorpost because of his love for his bride and his children. But beyond that, it's also a picture of you and me and our choice of being a living sacrifice and taking up our cross or not. And there's a, there's a side point here that I, that I want to make very quickly, but I'm just going to make it and I'm going to move on. But this is to the men, specifically to the husbands. You say you love your wife and your children. There is one way to definitive, definitively prove it. Go to the doorpost. Follow Jesus forever. It's a beautiful picture in many ways. You see it again in Deuteronomy chapter 15. It's the same scenario, the second giving of the law. A servant can go free in the seventh year of service. Deuteronomy 15 verses 16 and 17. And it shall be, if he say unto thee, I will not go away from thee, because he loveth thee and thine house, because he is well with thee. Then thou shalt take an all, and thrust it through his ear under the door. And he shall be thy servant forever. And also unto thy maidservant thou shalt do likewise. You see, the servant gets to choose. It takes a willingness. 
But oh, if you are willing, then you are ready. And not only are you ready to meet the Lord, you're ready to experience a life of fulfillment that was before unimaginable. It's a life that is not in vain. It's a life that is not empty. It is a life worth living. It is back to what Paul said in Philippians 2. It's the one thing that makes your life mean something. Let me try to bring this together for you and shine a little bit of light on truth here. Because when you take up your cross and figuratively but willingly have that awl or nail-like tool driven through your ear on the doorpost, it dramatically changes your understanding of verses like Philippians 3.10. It says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. You see, there is a special bond, a special fellowship that comes from experiencing the same type of suffering as Christ. And listen, on one hand, it sounds almost like blasphemy to compare what we go through to what Christ went through. It's ludicrous. But on the other hand, that's the comparison God makes in his word. That is how he views it. If you're willing to go to the doorpost, you're going to your, the cross. And God views it that way. And we can please him through our service in the same way that Jesus did through his. And when God looked down at Jesus after his baptism, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there's coming a day that we have the opportunity to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. A servant that willingly laid his body against the wooden doorpost. So that gives me goosebumps. But let me shine a little more light. Because when you connect your life to Christ through this offering, you become a conduit for God to work in your life in an amazing way. And while your physical body may show the marks of being nailed to a cross or a doorpost, you've never been more alive. That's how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, the Holy Spirit of God inside us, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not us, we're earthen vessels, we're of clay, and we have cracks so that God's light can shine out. But look at what he says. He says, we're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. And listen to verse 10. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. And the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. And the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Paul makes this comparison many times in his epistles. In Galatians 6.17, 6, he says, From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks 
of the Lord Jesus? Do you have the marks of the Lord Jesus? He said, man can't hurt me because I went to the doorpost. I've got a hole in my ear. I'm a servant for life. Bad boys for life, man. Let's do this thing. So the first word to help you assess your readiness is offered. Have you offered your life willingly to him? Have you gone to the doorpost? Have you given your life to him just as he gave his life to you? But then, but then there's another word, a second word in this verse that helps you assess your readiness to meet the Lord. And that word is departure. Paul said, the time of my departure is at hand. So the first key word is about service through sacrifice. This key word is about perspective. Offered was about this physical life and, and what and how you live out your life while on this earth. Departure is about the spiritual life and how you view what's to come. And here's what I mean by that. In, in your view, is your view of leaving this earth an ending or a beginning? Is it an ending or a beginning? Because I want you to pay attention to not only what Paul said, I also want you to pay attention to what he didn't say. He said, the time of my departure is at hand. He didn't, did not say, the time of my death is at hand. You see, departure is a beginning. It's the start of a new journey. There is excitement in the air. But death is an ending. Sadness is in the air. So when you think about the rapture, what is the first hint of emotion you feel? Is it excitement or dread? Because that provides some insight into your readiness. And listen, I get it. It's probably somewhere in the middle. We've already talked about it. It's tough to get excited about the unknown. And if you ignore the Bible, the physical life is all we know. But that is the point. Can you live a life of faith with Scripture as your guide, believing in that blessed hope of salvation that Scripture promises? Can you turn your ultimate perspective to things eternal? to things promised in his word. That's what 2 Corinthians 4.18 tells us to do. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. Don't, look at, don't spend your time only looking at the temporal things of life, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, Paul called his death a departure because that eternal perspective was something that was long settled in his heart. He describes it further in the very next verse in 2 Corinthians, moving to chapter 5 and verse 1. It's the very next verse, right after 2 Corinthians 4, 18. It says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. And, and there's a lot in this passage. Um, that we don't have time to look at and is kind of off topic anyway. But, 
But Paul is continuing to make this point of eternal perspective. And we skip down to verse 6. He says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. You see, Paul was about departure and not death because he believed what the Scriptures told him about the life to come. And that is the key. You see, I'm not asking you to get excited about the unknown. I don't get excited about the unknown. I'm asking you to get excited about what the Bible says to be true. So in order to get excited about the rapture and the millennium and eternity, you just have to believe the Bible. There is actually much to be known and much that is said. You know how many times God talks about the millennium and the second coming in his word? A lot. It's a lot to be known. But you have to believe it more than you believe even your own eyes. It's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. And we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God, Romans 10, 17. This is how Paul lived his life because he would go on to say things like for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Philippians 1.21. And in verse 23 of that same chapter, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Like, oh, you stinking Philippians, man. I could go on, but I got to stay here for you guys. And there was this internal battle with Paul and wanting to depart to be with the Lord, but knowing God still had work he needed Paul to do here. And I think that would define somebody who's ready. You know, our problem is usually the opposite. We have an internal battle. It's just kind of not wanting to depart. And thinking we still need to do more work while we're here. That we haven't done enough for the Lord. And honestly, that's not even the issue. It's never been about how much we do. It's just about our willingness to be an offering. Have you gone to the doorpost or not? And how much you believe the Bible. Are you willing to do whatever God asks of you? And do you believe his word and take it as such, his word? If you can answer yes to those questions, then you're ready. If you're willing to go to the doorpost and just put your faith behind this book, you're ready for the rapture. You could say like John did in the next to last verse of the Bible, he which testifieth these things saith, saying, he's saying, surely I come quickly, amen. And then John says, even so, come Lord Jesus. Man, that's being ready. And then you prove that readiness by what Paul outlines in verse 7. 
So after you assess your readiness and whether you think you're ready or not, next you need to accept your responsibility. You accept your responsibility. Look at verse 7. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And now we're not, we're not going to take the time this morning to dig into these responsibilities of, of fighting a good fight, finishing your course, and keeping the faith, because that's the next three weeks. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna break those down one by one, one each week. But we're doing that because this is really the crux. This was Paul's summary of his life, these three simple statements. And since Paul is our model Christian, these things are a big deal. And it doesn't matter if you think you're ready for the rapture or not. Verse 7 is the answer. Either way, if you're ready, it's what you do to stay ready. And if, it's what you start doing if you're not ready. And listen, it, I mean that as an encouragement. If you are listening to this and you're like, holy moly, I, I am nowhere near ready. Listen, just start today. One day is better than none. You want God to find you being faithful. So start today. So I, I, mean, and I, I, I mean that when I say I want that to be an encouragement. Because verse 7 is the answer. It's what success looks like in the Christian life. And I, and I think we all have that desire in us. I hope so. We obviously have competing desires to take over too many times. But for most Christians, I think we want success in serving the Lord. You know, success in, in general is a desire that is built into us innately. There are probably not too many of us that say, you know what, I, I'm good, I want to be a failure. I'm good with it. You know, hopefully that doesn't describe you. You know, you've seen the, like the keychains or the coffee mugs that has your name on it. And it has some descriptor that the name is supposed to mean, you know, like Troy, warrior, you know, or, or what, whatever. You know, it's something successful, something, you know, powerful. I haven't seen too many of those that say, you know, Troy, untrustworthy. You know, I, I haven't seen that, and I wouldn't buy it if I did. You know, like I don't, I don't care how true it may be, I'm not going to be drinking my morning coffee from a coffee cup that says Troy lazy like, I'm not I'm not buying I'm not buying that mug and so, and so you know we have this desire in us to be successful and, and I desire to be successful in all areas of life in, in verse 7 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 is complete success in life by definition I'll show you in the coming weeks how this verse connects to Joshua 1.8. It's a verse with the only mention of the word success in the Bible. That, that verse says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So you know, the word success is found one time in the King James Bible. It's here. Well, 2 Timothy 4.7 is a lifetime of putting Joshua 1.8 into practice. I'll show you that in the coming weeks. And when we do that, what we're going to see in verse 7 is, is three pictures. We're going to see the soldier, the sprinter, and the sentinel. Shout out to our friend Brett Bartlett. If you get that, fine. If not, don't worry about it. 
Um, it's sentinel. It's his, his word. Um, but we have to fight. We have to finish. And again, don't, you know, don't think of finish as, okay, this lifetime. Maybe. If you live a lifetime, if the rapture's in a month, okay, God knows your course. You're going to finish what God has for you. We have to fight, we have to finish, and we have to keep the faith. And the fact is you will be rewarded someday for how you guarded the body of truth contained in the Bible. And listen, it is a fight and nothing in a fight is fair. Or, or maybe I should say everything in a fight is fair. So we have to fight hard. We have to run hard. We have to hold on to hard. We have to keep the word tenaciously with violence clear to the end. And the reason why is because our foes are not people. They're certainly not family. We have spiritual enemies, a, a loose devil on the outside, a seducing world on the outside, and a traitorous old nature on the inside. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You have enemies without and you have enemies within trying to defeat you, trying to stop you, trying to detour you. So to see success that Paul lays out in verse 7, it's going to take some spiritual discipline. It's going to take strategy. There's a mental aspect. It's going to take exercise. There's a physical aspect. It's going to take belief. There's a, there's a spiritual aspect. And we're going to talk all about that. Because here is the bottom line. In the course of the New Testament, Paul lays out the battle doctrine necessary to defeat those foes. And we know, we obviously know, that we ultimately win corporately by a large margin because the Lord is on our side, or, or better stated, we're on the Lord's side. Additionally, though, personal success is also guaranteed by the cross, but it's not automatic. You have to apply it. You have to crucify self. You have to crucify the world. You have to trust in the Lord's triumph of Satan through the cross. That is how you successfully navigate the course. And you do not have the privilege of choosing the course, but you do have the privilege of finishing it. And if you keep the faith, it will work out great for you. Because then point three, you get to await your reward. You get to await your reward. Look at verse eight. Henceforth, because of this, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. You see, this is where we get to say it was worth it all. Now, it was worth it all, even without the rewards. Because God is worth it all, no matter what. But in his loving kindness, he has seen fit to reward our service to him, our willingness to lay down our life to him. And for all those that love his appearing, all those who are ready for his return, which again you prove by verses 6 and 7 
a crown of righteousness is awaiting. And there are a couple things I want to point out here. First of all, I want you to notice that this reward is laid up. That means it's reserved. So as great as heaven will be, heaven is not the reward. Heaven is a gift. Getting to go to heaven is a gift that God gives to all his children, faithful or not. I praise the Lord. I truly praise the Lord. But heaven isn't the reward. And so, so many times in our mind, it's like, man, I'm, just, I'm giving my life to Jesus so I can go to heaven. Well, that's great, because heaven is a gift, but that's not the path to a reward. They're different. So what this means is the, the reward has been laid up. That means the Christians who have died and who have gone on to, have, they have not gone on to their reward yet. They've gone to heaven. No one has gone to their reward yet because it is laid up in reserve. It is warehoused until we all get there together. So Paul will not get his until we get ours. And I also want you to notice that this reward represents rulership because it is a crown. In fact, there are five crowns. The Bible talks about us being able to receive. There's this crown of righteousness here in our passage for those who love his appearing, proved by righteous living. There's a crown of life given to those who overcome temptation and persecution. James 1.12 says, Blessed is a man that endureth temptation, for when he has tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Third, there's an incorruptible crown given to those who have maintained a good testimony of Jesus by being temperate and moderate in their life. 1 Corinthians 9.25, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they obtain it to do a corruptible crown, we an incorruptible Fourth, there's a crown of rejoicing or the soul winner's crown. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? And then last, there's a crown of glory. And that's for those who pastor or shepherd or disciple and lead people in the word of God. 1 Peter 5 verses 2 through 4 says, feed the flock which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So these five crowns. And like I said, the crowns represent rulership, and that rulership will apply during the millennium. And we're not going to take the time to go through all of that. But suffice it to say, whatever you do, you don't want to be bareheaded in heaven. You'll want to have a crown or two or five. And here is how it will be conferred, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give. It is personally conferred or bestowed by the judge. That means it's coming at the judgment seat. Now, there is something in here that I want to clarify because some of you probably noticed that this verse says the rewards will be giving, given at that day. And, and if you did notice that, you probably already know that the phrase that day is usually a reference to the day of the Lord, the second coming and that thousand year millennial day. But if you were here or if you listened uh, in on our Wednesday night 
lesson that, that, that Jeff gave us. You also know that's not 100%. And the reference to that day in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, contextually, has to be the day of Christ or the rapture in, con in conjunction with the judgment seat. It's the same as the day of redemption in Ephesians 4.30. But, but I'll say, and I think Jeff even referenced this Wednesday night, a pretty strong argument can be made that the day of the Lord really begins with the day of Christ. And that's certainly the case for us as a church. So this is talking about the judgment seat. And with respect to the judgment seat of Christ, I want to ask you for a second. I, I want you to think for a second. Can you visualize it? I want you to try to visualize the judgment seat of Christ right now. Do you have a picture in your mind? Well, if not, I, I, I want you to think about some of the Commonwealth countries. So England, for example. If you lived in England, you'd be able to picture the judgment seat of Christ because it, it's a royal throne. And if you were being awarded something, you would kneel down at the bottom step and you would bow. And the monarch would knight you or you'd get a sword or a medal or a proclamation, a title, a crown. And it's the honor of service. A life lived for the country. Think about seeing Jesus on the throne, on his throne, and bowing at his feet, and then receiving a reward from the only righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he bestows crowns. For a life lived in service to him. This coming from the one who poured out his life for you. And he's rewarding you. How humbling. How incredible that will be. But listen on the flip side. Can you imagine the anguish of some Christians when others get crowns, they get none. What shame there will be in that day. Because the fact is, you can await your reward only if you have met the requirements of the reward. And for those that don't meet the requirements, they just won't have anything. And it will be apparent to all but you can't even argue because he's, he, he's the righteous judge. Man, let's not mess that up. Especially not in these last days. 2 John in verse 8 says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. What a shame if you don't have a crown. You better finish the course. Because it won't matter how well you did in the first hundred yards if you don't finish the race. Anything you win today can be lost tomorrow if you backslide, if you throw in the towel. So if you want something to live for, a cause to fight for, a race to run for, a treasure to guard, then go to the doorpost.
Because you want that day to be a day of rejoicing, not a day of sorrow. There's a hymn titled, Oh, I Want to See Him. And the chorus goes, Oh, I want to see Him, to look upon His face, there to sing forever of His saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. All my cares are past, home at last, ever to rejoice. And listen, my prayer today is that when we see Him, we will rejoice. We will rejoice together in laying down our lives for Him. Because here's, here's another awesome thing about God. Listen, he set all this up for us to succeed. We just walked through this progression of assessing readiness. And our readiness is determined and proven by accepting our responsibility. But once you live out the responsibility, you can just await your reward. It, it will happen naturally as you live your life in obedience to him. And that's true because God set it up that way. But God set it up to work either way. Because if you can just get to the point to where you can picture the judgment seat of Christ and you long for that day and you say, okay, man, I don't, I don't want to mess that day up. I just, and you decide to just love his appearing. And even if that's where you start, the Bible says that's the most sanctifying belief you can have. First John 3 verses 1 through 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So if you have that hope, that love of his appearing, the purification process will take you back to 2 Timothy 4.7. And it will motivate you to fight a good fight and to finish your course and to keep the faith. It will motivate you to do that. And when you do that, you'll naturally offer your life as a living sacrifice. And you'll naturally believe the book for what it is, the word of God. You see, it takes care of itself from either direction. So it doesn't matter how you get there. You just got to get there. Come from whichever direction you want. The Lord doesn't care. He just wants you there. So are you ready? I hope that you are. You know, here in a minute, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray, and the praise team is going to be back up. And we're going to sing the, 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 our, our closing song. And that's your time to commune with the Lord. And if there's something you need to get right with him, if, if you need to go to the doorpost this morning and offer your life to him, if you, need to, if you need to keep fighting, if you need encouragement to keep running, let him know and he'll help you. But maybe you're out there today, either in person or online, and you've never offered your life as a sacrifice to him because you've never accepted his sacrifice for you. And if that's the case, we would say you're not saved. And the Bible says that if you're not saved, then you're on your way to hell, eternally separated from God. 
And all getting saved means is that you recognize that you are a sinner and that you believe in faith that Jesus Christ came to this earth, he lived a perfect life, he died for your sin as a perfect sacrifice accepted by God the Father. And he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And you exchange your sinful life for his perfect life. And you can't do that by any work of your own. You only do it by placing your faith in the work he did. Your belief in him. That he died for you on the cross. That's what Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the mouth confession, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made known unto salvation. You accept Christ as your Savior, and you can be saved right now by just praying to Him, letting Him know that you're a sinner, and you accept His sacrifice for you. And He'll do it just like that. And if you pray that prayer this morning, let us know because we want to help you. If you have questions about that, let us know. We want to help you with that too. There is nothing we would rather do than help you work through what it means to become a child of God. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We're we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for your, your offering, your sacrifice for us. And Lord, you ask us to do the same. You ask us to build this relationship with you based upon mutual sacrifice. So I pray that you, you help us to do that. And then, Lord, that we live our life in such a way that that day when we see you, when we meet you in the air, when we, when we go to stand before your throne, Lord, that'll be a day of rejoicing. Lord, I, I pray for everybody here that, that knows you, that, that, Lord, we place our focus there as we are in these last days and we place our priority on you, living a life that is glorifying to you so that we won't be ashamed in that day. And Lord, if there's anybody here or online, Lord, that, that, that doesn't know you as personal Savior, Lord, I pray that you prick their hearts even now to pray the prayer that we just talked about, Lord, to give their life over to you and accept in faith what you did for them. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.